You're listening to the Ipsos Mori Politics and Society podcast with me, your host, Kieran Pedley. On this week's show, we're going to be focusing on Scotland. It may not have escaped your notice that we had a big poll out this week which showed support for Scottish independence at the highest level on record, 58%. We're going to go through some of those numbers that explain that shift or that apparent shift in opinion in Scotland and also some of the leader ratings Uh, voting intentions for next year's Scottish parliamentary elections and arguments for and against independence. And to do that, I was joined by Elsa Henderson from the University of Edinburgh and Emily Gray, Managing Director of Ipsos Borry Scotland. And here is that conversation. I'm here with Ailsa Henderson and Emily Gray. Welcome to you both. Um, something of a bombshell poll yesterday that we released. Uh, I don't get to say that very often, or normally when I do, um, I'm exaggerating for effect a little bit. But um, it does feel like this was a, there's a poll that may, had a big impact. Um, before we get into the detail of some of the numbers, Ailsa, I, I just wanted to get your, as the guest, get your uh, impressions on some of those numbers first. I mean, what did you make of it? What stood out for you? Yeah. Well, I mean, three things stood out for me. First of all, the kind of headline figure on on support for independence, that 58 percent, which um, would seem would seem high. But I don't think it's probably high. I do think that's an accurate read on what the electorate is is thinking at the moment. But the, but the caveat on that is that we're still very much in hypothetical territory and we know that individuals the way they answer hypothetical questions about democratic contests that might happen in a year or five years isn't necessarily how they end up voting. And I think that figure, um, although an accurate read on the electorate, I think that figure probably is a proxy for, for dissatisfaction with the UK government, with the prime minister at the time, frustration with its handling of COVID and also enduring hostility to um, to Brexit. The firmer numbers, I think, the ones that are actually more likely to translate into votes at the at the ballot box are the, the voting intention figures for um, for 2021. And I think those are equally remarkable. You've got a, a 40 point lead on constituency vote between the SNP and the, the second place conservatives. And you've also got a precipitous fall in, in Labour's numbers. And that's just continuing what has been a run of really bad news for the party lately. And then last for me is the, are the issues on leadership. And for, for me, what interested me were the, the, the figures saying they don't know, they don't have opinions on the leaders. Um, and those figures are very low for, for the Prime Minister Boris Johnson and for First Minister Sturgeon. But they're, they're very high for everybody else. Um, and I think that that speaks a lot about the way communications is happening at the moment in, in COVID, the fact that the First Minister and the Prime Minister are really the focus of everyone's attention, but the challenge that poses to leaders of other parties. Mm-hmm. It does seem like they can't get their, get a word in within the, the, the debate that's going on at the moment. I mean, Emily, uh, yeah, but, uh, fresh from several media interviews and uh, lots of uh, attention in the last like, 24 hours, a bit of a whirlwind. I mean, what was your, uh, that, the cold light of day, if you like, the day after? I mean, what, what do you take away from those numbers? I mean, I would, uh, I would agree with what Ailsa said, that 
you know, so this, the polls have been moving towards yes for some time now. So since the early summer, I think every poll that has that has been um, done on, on voting intention for Scottish independence has found has found yes ahead. So in a way, I think this is just a continuation of a trend. And although it's being talked about as a as a bombshell poll, I have to say, you know, of course, in, in my job at Ipsos Mori, I spent a lot of time talking to people across across Scotland about how they feel about these these sorts of constitutional and political issues. And actually, based on that, it, re it really doesn't surprise me. What I what I do find striking is who's moved, so who's in, who's shifted their opinions on on independence and on, on support for the union. Uh, so we last polled on on this in Scotland last last November, just before the general election. And what we found then is that people were in Scotland were split down, split right down the middle on independence. You know, 50% yes, 50% no. One's undecided and and don't know to removed. And who's changed? I think it's interesting that women's opinions have changed. So there is now no gender gap on attitudes to independence. Women are just as likely to say that at the moment that they would vote yes to independence as men are. And that is and that is a real has been a real shift over time because certainly back in 2014, at the time of the first independence referendum, that wasn't the case. Men were more in favour of, of yes than women were. Um, but the other very striking thing for me here is the is the age profile as well. So the over 65s are now the only age group who on balance would still vote, you know, still say that they would say that they would vote no if a referendum was held tomorrow. So support, so support for independence was already strong among young people. But I think what is interesting to me about this poll and um, that this poll shows is that it's also risen among other age groups, particularly the over 35s. So, I mean, that's, I guess, part of the... So you've talked there, Emily, about the, some of the demographics that have uh, shifted. Um, I want to talk a bit about why they might have shifted. I mean, Elsa, it seems to me like these numbers are part of something of a perfect storm uh, in Scotland at the moment. In the middle of COVID, um, you have Brexit, you have um, uh, obviously Boris Johnson, not particularly popular, I think you alluded to in the introduction. Um, I mean, we'll come on to some of the arguments for and against independence later, but do you think this is kind of like a, a moment in time where the conditions for yes are sort of the best they're ever going to be and and therefore maybe the the support for yes is artificially high or or, or is ultimately those those demo, some of those demographics like age that Emily's uh, mentioned just mean that this kind of this is inevitable I I don't think I don't think it's in, inevitable um but uh, on the gender point, I mean, I, I think that's a really interesting one, because when, when we were looking after the Brexit referendum in 2016, we were thinking, right, if we're going to see a change in the patterns of support for yes, no, then presumably it would now, um, because Scotland voted Remain and the UK would be the EU. So we expected that if there was going to be a change, it would, it would happen. And what we found, actually, is that it wasn't really going on. So... The, the traffic there was a lot of individual level churn but there was aggregate level stability in the yes. in the overall results because the the people who were moving from no to yes were roughly cancelling out the people who were moving from from yes to no but if you looked at that category of voters who had voted no in 2014 remain in 2016 and then said they had changed their minds to vote yes and if you looked at the demographic profile of those voters women were overwhelmingly represented in that group. And so it wasn't that you could see a change in the pattern of overall support, but the demographic profile of those who were switching to yes suggested that in a few years, 
this would start to have a knock-on consequence in terms of support for independence in Scotland. And that those those demographic shifts we saw in those switchers in 2016 are what we're now seeing in the figures when we ask about independence. So I, 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 I do think COVID is relevant, but I, I do think Brexit is, is still really important for helping us to understand what's happening in Scotland. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think it's it's been it's been quite a, a slow burn. Um, but then I do think I do think there's a pandemic effect as well because it was as I said, it's particularly over the summer that the polls have you know, since the summer the polls have shifted in in favour of yes. So while I think that's been coming for a while, I think the I think there is something about you know people having seen de- it devolution. Ha- having been more visible to people than than ever before really so those you know so the pandemic has shown you know has has shown people decisions made being made in Scotland um that you know that for and for the people of Scotland and so it's made it very very visible I think the other big factor is leadership so as we've touched on Nicola Sturgeon's ratings are absolutely sky sky high at the moment um it of course it'll be interesting to see that where that goes over the over the com- months to come I think it's going to be a, a tough winter um and you know with with restrictions and you know economic or an economic recession looming um it does does that start to change but we'll see where we go I mean, let's talk about some of the um, the arguments for and against independence. And I, I should say, uh, just to sort of preempt something that people will will throw at us, if you like, um, we, we do we do realise there isn't a, a, a referendum campaign, and we we don't know if mm. there will be one or when it will be. And I think that one of the points I alluded to earlier was, I mean, the conditions right now are very bad for unionists. Maybe they'll change for one reason or another. You know a few years from now we can't really know but I still think it's interesting to look at what arguments seem to resonate for and against independence or I should say for independence and for Scotland's place in the union so this is difficult to do with audio but I'll do my best so um, I want to get your uh, both of your responses to this so we well, let's start with arguments in favor of independence and then, we, then I'll get your reaction and then we'll go uh, the other way so we tested four arguments in favor of independence and the two that resonated most strongly were one around people in Scotland want to take the country in a very different political direction to England. 64% found that convincing. And the other was Scotland should be independent because Westminster governments cannot be trusted to act in Scotland's interests. 63% found that convincing. And then moving on, uh, 57% found the argument around Brexit convincing. So basically that uh, Scotland voted remain even though uh, uh, the UK is leaving the, the EU, which I think uh, you, uh, I also just touched on. And... Uh, and the least convincing argument, uh, 52% found it convincing, but only one in four very, uh, very convincing was that in the long term, Scotland's economy will be stronger outside the UK than within it. Um, again, we don't, um, I'll come to you, Elsa, first. Obviously, we don't know if and when there will be another referendum, but I think some of those numbers do speak to the arguments that the yes side's going to have to make, don't they? So you've got this stuff around, um, you know, Scotland and England wanting different futures. Westminster not standing up for Scotland and Brexit, but the economic argument being maybe less persuasive. What, what do you make of some of those numbers and, and some, some of the, the work maybe the Yes campaign in inverted commas or the SNP are going to have to do to, to secure this lead that they seem to have for, for Yes? Mm-hmm. I, I think there's two things that, that are worth noting. One is that these arguments map fairly neatly onto arguments that were used last time and that were effective last time. So we know that the Yes campaign in the 
as the referendum campaign came to an end, the argument that was having more of an impact on yes voters was this argument about what kind of society do you want to um, do you want to have? Do you want to have a society where the gap between rich and poor is large, or one where the gap between rich and poor is small? And if you want that that latter option, then independence is the way to achieve it. So that was that was an argument that was that was always present in the campaign, but was really gaining traction with voters as referendum day approached. And the mm. other one was about the risks of the union. So the no side obviously was playing up the risks of, of change, the risks of independence. But the, but the yes, uh, Scotland campaign was playing up the risks of remaining in the union, about the fact that we couldn't, for example, trust, um, trust the NHS in their hands, that they would turn around and take us out of Europe, that they wouldn't listen to our our um, our needs and our wishes. And those two arguments were, were the two most effective arguments when you look at the individual level polling around 2014. And what we're seeing is that they remain for the electorate the um, really effective uh, really effective arguments for, for yes. I think the other thing that is worth noting, though, is that, you know, just as that works on the yes side, so too does it work on the no side. And the most effective argument we know for, for no last time was risk, and particularly economic risk. Mm-hmm. And within that, particularly currency risk, we know that currency was the was the real um, was the real issue um, in in terms of how risk played out, people's risk aversion and their their fear of of change. Uh, and we see that in the in the data today. So in a way, the the arguments now are kind of a rerun of arguments that people were using in 2014. And so there's no surprise there. But I think what's what's interesting is if we look not just at the headline figures about how the electorate reacts to those arguments, but how yes and no voters um, react to those arguments. And what I was looking for was whether there were any arguments that no voters, any arguments for independence that no voters found um, convincing and any arguments for the union that yes, voters found convincing. And what we see is that no voters actually are, are also convinced by the, by the notion or they are of the arguments for independence. The one they find most compelling is the fact that Scotland is different. Um, mm-hmm. And so that does suggest that that is the, that, that is the uh, um, I guess, the, the opening if you're the yes campaign and trying to persuade no voters over to your side. Whereas yes voters are well aware of both the fact that we have lots in common within the UK, but also um, this notion of, of economic risk. I think mm-hmm. in general, yes arguments also, yes campaigners or yes supporters are more convinced by their own side's arguments than are um than are no voters although there's there's not much in it but the last thing i would say on that is that there's a very big difference between thinking um bet- between thinking that something is a good thing or a bad thing and and thinking that it's that it's worth it so there's a difference between likelihood and actually whether it's a pain worth enduring yeah, I suppose that's um, going to be. And I think be... on the yes side, that's really important. You know, the economic, and this is what happened in Quebec. You know, they they said, you know what? Yeah, we're going to be poor, but mm-hmm. how much is how much do you think it should cost you to have an independent state of your own? And mm-hmm. I think we have to be really careful with that economic argument because a lot of yes voters would say, yeah, absolutely, we'll be poor, uh, possibly in the in the not just in the short term, but in the medium term as well. But do you know what? 
think it's a price worth paying. I mean, I want to come in to, um, to, to bring you in, Emily, on some of the arguments against. I think Elsa raises some really interesting points there. I, I almost cringe when I make this comparison because I know how people will respond, but I'll make it anyway. I mean, there, there are parallels with Brexit where you know, some of the people that uh, voted to leave the European Union uh, all over the UK, but in England particularly, uh, either didn't feel any notion of... Um, sort of economic risk was credible or, or were kind of conceptually prepared to take that risk or be poorer for, for benefits mm-hmm. around sovereignty that they saw. And listen, I know people aren't going to like the comparison between Brexit and Scottish independence, but at least in that sense that, that, that there are some comparisons to be made. Um, we tested some arguments. I Sorry, comparisons. I mean, I think that is fundamentally a, a common point there. It's, it is fundamentally about taking back control and having control over your own affairs. The mm-hmm. thing that also surprises me is that this is seen as as completely logical on the point of Brexit, but as seen as manifestly irrational on the point of Scottish independence. Yeah, and I must say, it didn't surprise me at all that the political arguments come out as as the strongest arguments for independence. You know, whenever I do focus groups on on this issue, that kind of discontent with being governed from from Westminster, which can feel very remote to many people in Scotland, comes comes out very strongly. So that that wasn't a surprise. But I think Ailsie made very interesting points around you know around referendums, because you know, because of course historically referendums, you know, not just not just in Scotland but around the world, people have. T- tended to be risk averse and people have tended to vote for the status quo. But I think we've seen that overturned with all the disruption in rec- in recent years. And, you know, perhaps that then gives momentum and and a moment for for, for kind of a, um, an, an overturned decision in, in future referenda as well. So just to just to sum up some of the arguments we put, tested um, in favour of Scotland staying part of the UK, I should say, rather than necessarily explicitly against independence. I mean, Maybe that's a distinction without a difference. But we asked, how convincing or otherwise do you find the following arguments for Scotland to stay part of the UK? And the top two were, in spite of current challenges, the different countries of the UK still have more in common than uh, than divides us. Uh, 60% found that convincing, including uh, 31% of Yes supporters. Um, 55% found the argument convincing that leaving the UK and becoming an independent country would be a major risk for Scotland's economy and jobs. So I guess the point we've been talking about a bit there... Uh, that, that was the argument that had the people were most likely to say was very convincing, 35%. But it should be said that um, that that 35% that found the economic argument, um, if you like, against independence very convincing, is lower than the 46% that found uh, Scotland uh, should be independent because Westminster can't be trusted to act in Scotland's interests. Very convincing. And similarly, the Brexit argument, 40% found uh, the Brexit argument in favour of independence, 40% found that very convincing. So. Whilst the economic argument is certainly something that's going to be made and has some traction, I think it's not necessarily uh, any more convincing than some of the arguments for independence. Um, and without going nuts and bolts for all of it, I mean, some of the least, less convincing arguments were that Scotland has the best of both worlds with the status quo, um, perhaps just because of that uncertainty I also mentions. Um, maybe the status quo isn't the security it once was. Uh, and then also leaving the UK would leave Scotland isolated and weaker on the international stage. Actually, more people found that unconvincing um, than convincing. So just a brief word on this, um, Emily. Uh, so I suppose the one thing the union, unionists are going to have to try and do is to make some of these, make, make, make some of the challenges or difficulties around uh, independence um, more at the forefront of that debate, aren't they? I mean, let's talk about <laughs> trade, uh, you know, I don't know, um, there was an academic from Oxford Brooks tweeting yesterday about how, you know, what, what does Scotland look like inside a single market 
if the if, if mm. the rest of the UK is outside it, what about currency you've mentioned earlier? Um, but you know, as Elsa says, is that just going to be? Do you think that can have some traction and move some of these numbers back towards no, or is it or is it priced in now? And I think what what the poll shows is that there there certainly are still arguments for the union that play strongly with with the public in Scotland. Uh, so the you know the economics and the currency argument in particular do remain a weak a weak point for the nationalists at the moment. And that I think those I I've, I found it interesting that you know that the, the the argument around the risks of independence for the economy and jobs is still the one that is is very convincing for the most for the most people right more in co- the, the arguments about there being more in common than divides us there was broader agreement with that but i would say it was also a bit shallower um so but i but i think but but i found that more in common that i found the point that that more in common argument played well very interesting because you know this in in many the, these decisions are made for all sorts of reasons um you know and 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 part of that may be emotional part of part of that may may be rational so but I have to say, if I was advising the, um, you know, unionists at the moment, I think I would just advise them to stall for it, to keep stalling, um, because the next months are going to be, you know, are going to be difficult times with this cop. You know, we've already seen that a cocktail of Brexit plus demographic change plus the pandemic plus leadership has, you know, I think brought about the shifts in public opinion that we've seen so far. But looking ahead to the coming months, you know, you've got Bre- you've got Brexit. You've got an economic recession and, you know, like you've, and obviously we're still in the middle of a global pandemic. So I think turbulent times ahead. I mean, I'll just give my own sort of thoughts on a couple of, a couple of those briefly before we move on to finish uh, with the sort of final questions. I mean, that more in common argument, so just to recap that. So there's, there's almost two, not quite juxtaposed, not juxtaposed, but sort of juxtaposed arguments that we tested that resonated both on the pro-independence and um, pro-unionist side. So on pro-independence, we had 60, just a reminder, we had 64% agreeing uh, or, or finding it convincing that people in Scotland want to take the country in a very different political direction to England. I mean, it makes sense when you look at Brexit and other things. Um, so that was uh, you know, a convincing argument for independence, whereas 60% said, uh, found it convincing that in spite of current challenges, the different countries of the UK still have more in common than divides us. And you had roughly equal numbers of yes and no voters, around three in 10, so by no means... Uh, a majority of either group in, 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 by any sense uh, found the almost the opposite argument if you like to their current voting intention um, convincing now we can debate how strong that is whether that would actually move voting intention in a future referendum or, or not we just don't know um, there's definitely something to be said about this about this conflicting debate between Scotland and England wanting different futures versus the idea that we have more in common and maybe that's just an argument that both sides are going to have to have and it's not necessarily resolved yet. I mean, it looks like from voting intention figures for another referendum that yes is very much ahead. We can debate how much. Um, but I think that sometimes in, in, in political communications, you have a debate. Do you focus all your eggs, if you like, in, in the basket of the argument you think has the most traction for you? So unionists might be tempted to talk about the economy. Or do you have that fight about the more in common versus the different futures? And you, know, you, you might win it, you might lose it. But you, you kind of know you need to have that fight to to sort of peel people off. And, and then on the yes side, I mean, that different futures argument, it, it, well, it, it makes sense, doesn't it, when you look at the current circumstances. But I suppose they're going to have to look at some of the detail uh, when it comes to the heat of a campaign. You're always going to have some people that are risk averse and uh, we don't know what the conditions are 
of another referendum yet. So I think the First Minister is quite right to say uh, the SI can't be complacent about these numbers because um, whilst the conditions seem favourable at the moment, you don't know what they're going to be in two or three years' time. Doesn't mean they'll get worse for yes, but they could do. Who knows? Um, just to finish, final sort of, I don't know, five minutes or so, just I guess on the path to independence or if you like, or, or maybe uh, another way of putting it is, is, the, is the elections um, mm. next uh, next year, which of course are the most pressing um, thing. Um, I just want to get both of your takes on it, really. It looks like the SNP are on course for a majority. Um, our poll suggests that two-thirds of Scots think that's a mandate for another referendum. Um, but what are we looking out for? I mean, maybe I'll come to you, Elsa, first. But what, what do we think could uh, shape that vote next year? I mean, is it already kind of baked in, do we think? Or are there things around the leadership or around COVID that might change uh, where we end up from where we are now? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't... Yeah, it's a remarkable number. It's a, re- it's, uh, it's a remarkable number to have an almost 40-point lead on the constituency vote as you head, uh, as you head into the election in, in May. The movement um, you know, this far out from the election is fairly normal. So we know that in the last five months of the campaign in, in 2016, the SNP dropped six points. But we know that from the October before, kind of the period we are now before the 2011 election, they jumped 11 points. So so in the last year before an election, a, a fair amount of movement is um, is normal. But the SNP could drop 10 points and still form a majority government. So we would have to be looking at not just normal high movement, but higher than normal movement for it to be out of the running for um, for forming a majority government that's not to say that they're not they're not vulnerable on a number of, of policy issues that the handling of covid is perceived to be better than than the handling of COVID by the uk government but it is still deeply flawed i mean you, they're benefiting from the fact that they're being compared to what is almost the worst in the worst in europe if you're looking across death rates and death death toll total death toll so they're they're benefiting in a way from from the comparison with with the UK figures, but it's still deeply flawed here. You know, there's real concerns about care homes. We have the Salmon inquiry and questions about who knew what when. We have the handling of of education under lockdown, the handling of the exams, which was a fiasco. Again, perhaps less of a fiasco than in England, but still, um, still very troubling for a large number of, of families. And that's layered on to the fact that their handling of education has been something that opposition parties have tried to to put in the limelight uh, and and make some make some inroads in terms of chipping away at the perception that the the SNP they're they, they just um, you know all this time in government they're flawless there's nothing wrong there there is there's lots of material that you could use if you're mm-hmm. trying to portray the the SNP government as as less than less than perfect and that's not to say that there's not a lot of innovative work that's that has happened about the knife crime and the public health approach to that but there is there is a lot of material for opposition parties to use isn't the I issue though also that there aren't really any there isn't really a much strong opposition in, in reality well, the problem is that they're they're perceived to be by voters to be more competent than any of their rivals so i think there's a difference here do you think they're excellent at what they're doing maybe not but are they more com- competent than the alternative Mm-hmm. Yes. And so this has been going on in the polling for ages. You ask people who's most competent at handling a range of policy options. And the SNP comes out top on every single one and has for years. It's not just standing up for Scotland. Mm-hmm. 
But they still perceive it to be more competent on education. And it is remarkable, I think, to have been 14 years in government and, you know, and, and still be getting these sorts of ratings around around competence and around next year's elections. We haven't spoken much about the other parties, but, you know, I think from from the numbers, they have a, both the Tories and, and Labour and the Lib Dems, in fact, have a have a mountain to climb at the moment. I do, I would expect that in the campaign, they will focus on the sorts of issues that that, that you mentioned, Ailsa. So particularly pressure, putting pressure on around education, public services, you know, those those sorts of areas. And obviously we will, we will see what happens. You know, Conservatives did strengthen, you know, did gain ground in the course of the campaign back in 2016. That, that could happen again. No Ruth um, Davidson this time though, yeah. of course. No. Indeed, but you know that that said, Douglas Ross is 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 pop- reasonably popular among his own party supporters, at least. Mm. It's the first time, yeah, it's the first time we've we've had ratings for him. Still relatively new in post. I mean, one of the one of the striking things for me, looking at the leader ratings, I mean, look, the obvious one is that seventy two percent are satisfied with the job Nicola Sturgeon is doing, versus seventy six percent are dissatisfied with Boris Johnson. I mean, if you want to oh, understand, I mean, yeah, I don't know if there's one figure uh, outside of obviously the fifty eight percent for yes that the sort of explains the world in which we live in but that seems to be certainly one of them you've got a very popular first minister do it seems to be doing a very good job uh, on covid among scots and then you've got really really i mean okay david cameron i don't have his leader ratings to hand uh, from scotland from back back then but i mean he was by no means popular in scotland but i'd be surprised if his numbers were worse than boris johnson's um a number that stood out as an aside sorry go on uh, emily Oh well, but, you know, Boris Johnson is just toxic in Scotland. You know, so I thought we his ratings were very poor prior to the general election last year, and at that time I thought, oh, well, these can't these can't really fall any further. But it's actually, you know, we've measured them just now; they have fallen again. I mean, to give people listening in England a bit of a, a sort of comparison point, I mean, his Boris Johnson's leader ratings in Scotland are about very similar to what Jeremy Corbyn had at his worst for GB wide, you know, and we, and we were mm. regularly talking about, oh God, you know, look how terrible uh, Jeremy Corbyn's ratings are as a leader of the opposition uh, for, for, for GB wide. Um, and people were rightly saying, oh God, that's, that's awful. I mean, how do you win an election? How do you win people over with those ratings? Well, Boris Johnson's as toxic uh, in, in Scotland, particularly. I mean, there's a number that I don't want to dwell on too much because we're running out of time, but it's worth listeners knowing, um, which was that Keir Starmer has a positive uh, satisfaction rating in Scotland. He's the only one uh, that isn't Nicola Sturgeon, so that includes uh, Douglas Ross, Willie Went, Rennie, uh, Richard Leonard. All have, I mean, Ross and Leonard have negative uh, ratings of um, minus 17 and minus 25, respectively. And Willie Rennie has a, a sort of roughly, well, it's minus one, but it's sort of roughly equal numbers, satisfied and dissatisfied, although 41%. Uh, don't know. Um, but Starmer has a plus 16 rating, uh, 44 satisfied, 27 um, not, and then 29% uh, don't know. So look, I mean, that's by no means the story from these numbers, but it is interesting that Starmer's ratings are at least in positive territory. I mean, obviously nowhere near uh, what Nicholas uh, Sturgeon's numbers are, not even close. Um, just final word from both of you, though. I mean, just to remind listeners or, or, or maybe sort of inform listeners who aren't as familiar with uh, the situation. I mean, yes, the SNP in terms of next year's elections are miles ahead in, 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 the, in the sort of popular vote share. Um, but of course, they need to get a majority, don't they? I mean, Boris Johnson's already 
uh, very resistant to offering another referendum anyway in any circumstances. But if they don't get a majority, uh, then I mean he'll only that, that that view will only be hardened. So I mean final like minute each maybe just to sum up. I mean, what do we think is the risk that the SNP don't actually get their majority because? Uh, um, you know, as we say, they, they've got a large poll lead, but they need one, don't they? So, I'll, um, actually, I'll go to Emily first and give the last word to our guest. So, um, Emily, what, what do you think the risk is for the SNP that they don't get the majority? Because, yes, they've got a lead, but, you know, lead, a lead on its own isn't yeah. necessarily but, and as, as Elsa's already said, I think it's about the size of that lead that they would, you know, that they they would they, they would really need to come come down a lot um, in order to to not get a majority on current figures, you know. And of course, we're still seven months out, and a lot could change. Um, but I I do, you know, to me at the moment, a majority in Hollywood next year, a majority of seats in Hollywood next year looks looks likely. And you know. If that happens, then I think the argument that we that you keep hearing from the UK government around, you know, last time was a once in a lifetime, once in a lifetime vote uh, that we need to respect, that will come under increasing strain. And final word to you, Elsa. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, a majority is, is looking likely. If you're looking at the polling before 2011, when they had a majority, I mean, they never really polled higher than 46%. So, you know, we are we are looking forward to one. The, the issue, though, is whether there's a magic number they need to reach in order to be guaranteed of a referendum. And I'm not so sure that a magic number exists. I think uh, a UK government would be very reticent to allow a referendum, in, in part because it's been... It was shocked in 2014 about how close it, it, it came. Um, there was a surprise at the result in 2016. I think they, they would have reason to be uh, not particularly confident about how one might turn out. It's just such an unknown once you start to get into that campaign. So I think we, you know, they might do very, very well. They might form a majority. They might get 55%. They might get 60 But I don't think any of that is a guarantee that a UK government would be willing to, to grant a referendum. And that, therefore, is a very difficult um, situation to manage. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think, as an aside, I have this working theory that the Conservatives uh, in Westminster would look quite like to go into a general election here, uh, a UK-wide general election, being able to say that a vote for Labour... Um, you know, either in Scotland or in England or Wales, uh, is a vote to break up the union because Starmer would need the SNP uh, to form a government and they'd want a referendum and so on and so forth. Uh, whereas, you know, vote for me, uh, presumably Boris Johnson, but who knows, maybe Rishi Sunak or someone else, uh, is a vote to preserve the union. Ironic, really, when you look at the when you look at the situation, but um, it wouldn't be surprised. But um, that's all we've got time for uh, today. So th big thanks to my guests, Elsa Henderson and Emily Gray. Um, and uh, thanks for listening, and we'll speak to you soon. That was the Ipsos Mori Politics and Society podcast. A big thanks to my guests, Ailsa and Emily, um, this week. If you like what you hear, please uh, subscribe to the podcast, either on Polling Matters or on the Ipsos Mori uh, podcast feed. Uh, tell a friend about us, share us on social media. Anything uh, you can do to spread the word is very much appreciated. Uh, we still get list new listeners every week, so that's a very good thing. Um, but for now, thanks for listening and have a great weekend.